Hi, this is Brent White, and welcome to my sermon podcast. I preached the following message on September 24th, 2017 at Hampton United Methodist Church. This is part two um, in a series on sola scriptura, the, the doctrine that says that the Bible is our ultimate authority guiding our Christian faith and practice. And I'm talking in this sermon about what it means, uh, what Paul means in 2 Timothy 3 when he says that all scripture is inspired, or better, breathed out by God. And I'm going to use a, a recent book by Pastor Adam Hamilton to sort of bounce ideas off of. Uh, Hamilton says that um, this word for inspiration is is no different from the kinds of inspiration that Christians experience today. In fact, he says that C.S. Lewis, in his great uh, works of Christian literature and Christian apologetics, was no less inspired than the writers of Scripture. Needless to say, if you know me at all, <laughs> I, I disagree with that. In fact, I think that I think that Reverend Hamilton is, is dangerously off-base, and I talk about some reasons why. Foremost among them is the way Jesus himself views Scripture, as is clear from the Gospels. As was the case last week, I hope that this sermon helps to inspire confidence in God's Word, that it helps to convince us that we can build our lives on Scripture, on the Bible. Our Bible passage again is 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 to 17, which I'm going to read now. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. As a prayer before the sermon, I'd like to read Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Paul begins today's scripture with these words, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. And what Timothy has learned and what he has firmly believed, Paul says, is found in the sacred writings, our holy Bible. Remain there, Paul says. Remain in God's word. Don't stray from its teaching. Don't stop reading it. Don't stop studying it. Don't stop treasuring it 
as the most important possession in your life. Aside, aside from the gift of eternal life that's available in Christ Jesus, surely the greatest gift that God has given us is the gift of his holy word, the Bible. And of course, everything we know about God's gift of salvation through Christ, God's plan of salvation for the world, how much God loves us, we learn from this one book. Don't leave it. Don't think that you can progress beyond it. Don't imagine that you can improve upon it. There is enough in this word, in these words from God to last you the rest of your life every day. Brothers and sisters, do you believe it? Do you really believe it? My, My second favorite movie about the Christian faith is a movie called The Apostle, starring Robert Duvall. Um, my, my first favorite movie, by the way, is, uh, is uh, Chariots of Fire. <laughs> both movies are excellent. They both have a lot to say about uh, what it means to be a Christian. I recommend both of them to you. But, but The Apostle is wonderful. It's about a, a deeply flawed, but also sincerely Christian pastor who lives in the deep, South, Someone gives him a a deed to this tiny, out-of-the-way church that no one has worshipped at in many years, and he renovates it along with some of his fellow uh, 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 congregants. And he starts preaching there, and slowly but surely, people start coming. But they're they're the wrong kind of people for this particular place. Most people in his congregation are black or Hispanic. They're, they're mostly poor. And there's one, one person in the town, a white supremacist, played by Billy Bob Thornton, who doesn't like it at all. In fact, one Sunday, he shows up at church while they're worshiping, driving a bulldozer. And he intends literally to tear that church down, to flatten it to the ground. And Robert Duvall, who plays the preacher, finds out what's happening. And he walks outside and he takes his black leather bound Bible and he places it in front of one of this vehicle's uh, uh, caterpillar tracks, daring the man, daring the man to drive his bulldozer over this Bible. And Thornton says, move that Bible. (laughs) I'm not moving that Bible. Move that Bible. I'm not going to move it. There's a tense standoff between these two. Will Thornton run over this preacher's Bible? After several tense moments, Thornton climbs down from the cab of his vehicle in tears. And Duval embraces him. This sinner repents. 
Friends, I know most of us don't own a bulldozer, and if we do, none of us is literally ever going to run over a Bible with it. None of us is going to leave the Bible lying in the dirt or the mud. But let me ask you this. Are you treating God's word in a way that's consistent with what you say you believe about it? Are you treasuring it? Are you placing it at the very center of your life? Are you remaining in it or have you strayed far from it? Here's a test. Suppose someone is going to monitor you for the day, follow you around. What would they say you treasure more? Your Bible or your smartphone? Or is that not a fair comparison? Which which do you believe, really believe is more essential for your life today. My task as your pastor to convince you that this Bible ought to be the most important possession in your life is not made easier by our culture, which demeans the Bible, mocks the Bible, seeks to diminish the importance of the Bible at nearly every turn, movies like The Apostle notwithstanding. Therefore, it breaks my heart that in his recent book, Making Sense of the Bible, Adam Hamilton, United Methodism's most popular pastor and one of its most gifted preachers, is effectively contributing to this culture of disdain for God's word. Lest you think I'm exaggerating, consider this. In a chapter in his book, he discusses Paul's words in today's scripture, including verse 16, all scripture is breathed out by God. Now, the the ESV does an excellent job translating the Greek word underneath that breathed out. That's literally what Paul says. It's it's uh, it's um, breathed out. Let's see. It's um, I have it here. Theonoustos. God breathed, God breathed out. And um, some Bibles will translate that word inspired. In fact, the, the pew Bibles in the pew rack translate it inspired. All, all scripture is inspired by God. And that's the way the King James translates it. And that's, that was okay back in the 17th century. But because we use that word inspired so much today, we use it so often, I think it's lost its meaning. We say, well, Ian's performance was inspired. <laughs> and it was. It was inspired. Uh, we say um, that, that, that movie, that filmmaker was inspired. Uh, this book was inspiring. That speech was inspiring. If you go and you buy a, a, a best-selling religious book and look on the back cover, you'll probably see the word inspirational because that's the category that those books belong in. Our frequent use of this word suggests that being inspired is some everyday run-of-the-mill event, and that's not at all what Paul means when he uses this word. In fact, um, scholars point out that, that this word... Theonoustos was never used in ancient literature prior to this verse of Scripture. 
which means it's very likely that Paul invented this word to say something uniquely powerful about what God has done through Scripture. Now, by contrast, in his book, Hamilton asks what he says is an uncomfortable question. He writes, Do you think the scripture writers, Moses, David, Matthew, and Paul, were inspired to a greater degree or in a different way than we experience the inspiration and guidance of the Spirit as Christians today? When a pastor prays while preparing his or her message each week, Holy Spirit, guide me that I might speak the words you would have me share with the congregation. Will the guidance he or she receives from the Spirit be less than or different from that received by scripture writers. How would you answer that question? Because I would answer that question by saying, dear God, I hope so. I would answer that question or those questions. Yes, God forbid anyone think that a sermon that I preach, however inspired it might seem, could ever be considered Equivalent in some way to the inspired words of God's holy word. So the answer to both those questions is an emphatic yes. The words of inscription, the words of scripture are more inspired than any other words of any literature anywhere. It's not even close. But Adam Hamilton says that the answer is no. He writes The Spirit's inspiration of the biblical authors was consistent with the way the Spirit inspires human beings today. He goes on to say that the writings of C.S. Lewis are no less inspired than the writings of Scripture. I had a parishioner tell me one time many years ago, she was leaving the church, she didn't like my sermons, and while she was walking out the door, I'm not kidding, she said, And by the way, I don't give a flip what C.S. Lewis says, (laughs) because she thought that I was uh, I was quoting C.S. Lewis too much in my sermons. Um, Needless to say, I do give a flip about what C.S. Lewis says. I love him. I love his writing. It's it's benefited me greatly. But I wouldn't dare say that they were as equally inspired as the Bible. And if Lewis could come back from the dead, I can only imagine what he would say to pastors like Adam Hamilton, who try to equate the two. Hamilton goes on to say that the Bible has more authority than C.S. Lewis, but its authority comes from the fact that it's closest in time to the life of Jesus. I I kid you not. He even makes the analogy of of, uh, the founding fathers of our nation, that their writings about our political system, our government, our laws are always going to be more authoritative than any contemporary writer's thoughts on those subjects, because they were there at the founding of the nation. He's saying That God did nothing unusual, nothing out of the ordinary to inspire the Bible's authors. Even his emphasis, though, on 
whether or to what extent the biblical authors were inspired is missing the mark. When Paul says that all scripture is breathed out by God, he isn't talking here about the extent to which the writers themselves were inspired. Now, granted, there are other scriptures that talk about the Holy Spirit working through the writers of scripture, but that's not even what Paul is saying here. He's telling us something that's, well, it's a much uh, greater claim than, than that. He's saying that the words themselves are breathed out by God. One takeaway from this, as I said last week in part one, is what N.T. Wright said. We can be confident that we have exactly the Bible that God wants us to have. This doesn't mean that God dictated the words to the biblical authors. He let them write in their own individual style, with their own personality, with their own idiosyncrasies, from their own point of view, from their own unique set of circumstances, God was working through their words to communicate his word. And isn't that the way God usually works through us human beings? Most of the time, we're not even aware of how God is working through us. We can sometimes look back in retrospect and see, oh yeah, I can see that God was doing this. I couldn't see it at the time. So why should the scripture writers have known at the time that they were writing what would become a part of our Bible? God works supernaturally through people, whether they are aware of it or not. Paul communicates this truth in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10. He's comparing his work as an apostle to the work of other apostles. And he says this, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. And when he uses that word, the grace, the the grace of God, that's almost equivalent to saying the Holy Spirit is working in him. So how can both those things be true? How can how can Paul be working and at the same time God's grace and, and God's Holy Spirit be working? It's true because it's not either Paul or the Holy Spirit. It's both Paul and the Holy Spirit. And this is the way it is when it comes to the way the Holy Spirit ensured that the words of merely human authors could also be the very words of God. Hamilton says that God, that uh, Paul did not use that word theanustas to mean anything out of the ordinary. But how is that consistent with the words of Jesus himself about Scripture In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. I talked last week about Hamilton's three-bucket approach to Scripture Do you think that that putting some of God's commandments in bucket number three, the way Hamilton does, and saying that that some of God's law uh, uh, was simply wrong and never reflected God's will, do you think that that's relaxing the least of these commandments and teaching others to do the same? I can't see how we can reach any other conclusion. Iotas and dots were tiny marks 
within the, the, the Hebrew of the, of the Old Testament writings. Every one of them, Jesus says, is important and every one of them will be fulfilled in some way. Or consider John 10.35, where Jesus is making an argument from Scripture and he says, by the way, it's got to be true. Why? Because God's word cannot be broken. Scripture cannot be broken. It can't be shown to be false, Jesus says. Or consider Mark 12.36. Jesus is quoting Psalm 110 and he says that David is writing his words in the spirit, in the Holy Spirit. Or consider Jesus' astounding words in Matthew 19. Now he's talking about the meaning of marriage and he says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Jesus is quoting Genesis 1, God made the male and female. Then he's quoting Genesis 2, 24, a man shall leave his mother and father, etc. Now here's the weird thing. If you look, go back and look at Genesis 2, 24, you'll see that those are not God's words. You know, when, it's not God speaking in that text when it says a man shall leave his mother and father. It's the narrator of Genesis chapter one who's speaking those words. But Jesus clearly says that God spoke those words. Jesus attributes these words not simply to a human author who is technically doing the speaking, but to God himself. This is how Jesus viewed all of scripture. It is God speaking even through mere human beings. Brothers and sisters, I'm just scratching the surface. There's much more I could say to prove to you that scripture itself teaches that scripture is uniquely inspired by God. But I want you to be confident that when you read this book, this precious and holy book, you are reading the very words of God, even though they were written by humans. Last week, I talked about how John Wesley, the founder of our Methodist movement, believed that Scripture was infallibly true, that it couldn't make any mistakes. And some of you have, might have heard this last week and you thought, well, now, wait a second. What about science? Because doesn't science show or prove that the Bible's description of creation in Genesis 1 and 2 isn't true? Not at all. And I speak from experience. I I personally know, I have known, I have met scientists at secular universities. Um, One of them went to my church, good old John Kramer. Remember him? A physics professor at Oglethorpe University. Um, I knew Georgia Tech scientists. I even met one time a, a, chemist, uh, a chemistry professor from the University of Georgia who had been nominated multiple times for the Nobel Prize in chemistry. His name is Henry Schaefer, a deeply committed Christian. And in fact, Schaefer said, you know, he was speaking from his own experience, he said, you know, many of my colleagues are Christians who believe the Bible just like me. 
And he pointed, I heard him at, uh, speak at Georgia Tech, and he said, and he pointed out that surveys show that scientists go to church more often with more consistency by far than the population at large. The point is, scientists like Schaefer and so many others have no problem believing in Genesis 1 and 2 because they understand that those chapters are not intending to give us a modern 21st century scientific account of how God created the universe. For one thing, nobody living 3,000 years ago would understand what that meant. And the Bible is intended for all people at all times, in all eras. For another, science is constantly changing and revising its view of reality. The Bible's words are meant to be timeless. Not to mention, there's, there's a lot of impressive work that's, that's been done to show that actually Genesis 1 and 2, when properly interpreted, are consistent with our best scientific knowledge. I could go on, but let me conclude with this. I went to a United Methodist affiliated seminary that in general did not hold to a high view of scripture. Many of its professors, most of its professors would have disagreed with John Wesley that the Bible was infallibly true. Not for good reasons, as I know now, but at the time I just kind of accepted their point of view. But God changed me back around 2009 when I read this nearly 1,000 page scholarly book written by N.T. Wright called The Resurrection of the Son of God. Wright is a world-class scholar. He's a retired bishop in the Church of England. And in this book, he makes a strong, powerful case for the bodily, physical resurrection of Jesus using historical evidence outside of Scripture, but then also bringing the Bible into it and showing how the Bible plus all this other evidence adds up to one conclusion, which is that Jesus was actually bodily resurrected from the dead. God used his book to clear up some doubts that I had had in the back of my mind that had just sort of been lingering for years. And I thought at that time, and I think today, everything that the Bible says about Jesus and his resurrection are completely true. It all makes sense. It all fits together. Therefore, Isn't it likely that what the Bible says about everything else is also entirely true and trustworthy? My life has never been the same. God's word, which the Bible says is alive and and, and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, has changed my life. God's word continues to change my life as I turn to it every day. I pray that it will change your life too. Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. Amen. Amen. Almighty God, 
Once again, we thank you for this amazing gift of your word. For those who have doubts about it, would you reach out to them and do for them what you did for me so many years ago? And show them the truth of it and give them the confidence they need to base their life on it. Because these are your words for us and through them, your Holy Spirit transforms us. We praise you for that. In Christ's name we pray. Thanks for listening. If you're on the south side of Atlanta on Sunday morning, I hope you'll consider worshiping with us at Hampton United Methodist Church. We're we're on West Main Street in downtown Hampton, Georgia. We have two worship services. We have an acoustic contemporary service at 9 o'clock and a more traditional service at 11 o'clock. Hope to see you there.